Genesis chapter 49 this morning. We are coming to the end of our study in the book of Genesis. And here we're also coming to the end of Jacob's life. And here he speaks his final words uh, to his sons, announcing a list of, well, mixed blessings to his, uh, his children. You know, before we read our passage, we're going to read uh, portions of this chapter, not the entirety of it. But before we do, let's pause once again and, and ask for the Lord's blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it, it is our joy to sing your praises and, and to hear you speak to us through your word. Uh, to hear uh, your word proclaimed to your people and, and have you search the depths of our beings, to know the secrets of our past, the emotions and struggles of our present, as well as our future destiny. Uh, we believe that when the Holy Spirit uh, comes to uh, the ministry of the Word, that He is able to apply it perfectly to each and every one of us. So Holy Spirit, accompany the, the reading and preaching of Your Word this morning. Show us Christ and all of His glory and grace and bring each one of us to entrust our lives into His hands. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And moving down then to verse 22. Jacob says of Joseph, Joseph is 
a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring, his branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. In verse 29, or excuse me, verse 28, all these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. And then the last verse in the chapter, verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Well, in the year 1900, a man by the name of A.E. Winship authored a book titled Jukes Edwards, uh, A Study in Heredity and Education. Uh, Jukes was actually a pseudonym to protect the guilty, and Edwards was uh, Jonathan Edwards, the, uh, the great 18th century pastor, theologian, missionary, and for a brief period of time, uh, president of the College of New Jersey, one of the greatest minds North America has ever known. Winship in this book uh, it compares the family descendants of Jukes and Edwards over the course of roughly 150 years looking at the lives of 1,200 individuals from both family trees. Uh, Max Jukes, the name that's invented to protect identities, had uh, in his family 300 children who died in infancy due to lack of care, 50 women known for notorious debauchery, 400 men who who wrecked their bodies by abusive behavior, seven murderers, 60 habitual thieves, and 130 convicted criminals. And that's just a sample of the Jukes family tree. And then in contrast to that, the Edwards family tree over the same period of time produced 100 ministers and missionaries. And I hope you think that's better than 130 convicted criminals. Uh, 13 college presidents, 65 university professors, 120 graduates of Yale alone, 100 lawyers, 30 judges, several mayors and state governors, and of course the famous, or should we say infamous, Vice President Aaron Burr, who who shot the uh, former Secretary of the uh, Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, in a duel. And this is uh, just a sampling of the Edwards family tree. Now, somebody might immediately protest with this comparison by saying, well, yeah, you know, the the Edwards family had 
had all of the privileges. They were, they were set up for success. Except Edwards himself had uh, a, a grandfather who was a profligate. Uh, he had, uh, he had an, an uncle guilty of fratricide. He had a great uncle who was an axe murderer. Uh, so there is this general lesson. It's actually not the main the, the point that Winship is trying to make in the book, but it's the general lesson I want to bring out today. Um, the, the, and the general lesson is that actions have consequences. And, and more than that, those consequences usually reach far beyond the one who is responsible for those actions. You, know, you, can't, you can't read the Bible without seeing this principle at play, that others breathe in the air that we breathe out. It's written right into the Ten Commandments that our actions often have consequences for those who are connected to us, those who are related to us. Um, and that's because God has not created us as solitary, isolated, unconnected individuals. He has created us as individuals within the context of a family, and he deals and works in families. And the story before us, I think, is an example of that principle, that, that what you are, what I am, has consequences for those who come after us. That, that what each of us is as individuals will, will have implications not only for our lives, but for the lives of those who come after us. And that's made clear here in this story. Jacob understood that principle. He, he knew it from his own life. He, he knew it from his own family story. Now, there is a, a sense in which, and it's brought out in, in verse 28, that all of the brothers will, to some extent, share in the blessing uh, of, of belonging to this, this nation that God is forming through them, Israel. But there is another sense in which there is an individual word for each of these individual family trees. And we see it, first of all, coming out in what Jacob says to Reuben in, in verses 3 and 4. Reuben was the, the firstborn son, uh, preeminent uh, in power, preeminent because he was Jacob's uh, firstborn. But because of his sinfulness, because of what it says back in uh, Genesis 35, that, that Reuben defiled uh, his father's concubine by his own sin, he is, he is now permanently removed from the position of preeminence. And then in verses 5 through 7, uh, Simeon and Levi, who, who acted out so violently when, when Dina was violated by Shechem, instead of acting responsibly and seeking justice, they, they chose the route of deceit and slaughter. And their descendants, Jacob is declaring, in a sense, violence will then be visited upon them, and they will be scattered throughout the land of Israel in the years to come. Today, I, I want us to, we could have a 12-point sermon today, but I won't do that to you. Uh, we, we want to look at just two of the primary family trees in this chapter. Two individuals are, are singled out in this chapter. Two individuals are addressed at length by Jacob. The first is Judah, the second is Joseph. 
And in many ways, they, there are similarities in terms of the, the great blessings that are, are heaped upon them. But then there's also a striking difference between the two of them because with, with Judah, we see, uh, we see God's word concerning a, a future blessing. Whereas with Joseph, we see a divine word about fulfilled blessing. And so with Judah, we see a divine prophecy about God's future blessing. And with Joseph, we see a divine word about fulfilled blessing. And that's what we want to think about together today. So first of all, let's think about God's word of future blessing to Judah. The first thing to note that's striking here is, is, is what we just said a moment ago. Judah is not uh, by birth the preeminent son. And Judah does not have a clean record. Do you remember when we looked at Genesis 38 and the sad and distasteful story of Judah and Tamar and his selfishness and self-centeredness and lust and self-righteousness that was on display in that story? But more recently, we've seen Judah the man with a changed heart. Judah down, down in Egypt, whereas he along with his brothers was filled with envy and jealousy and antagonism towards Joseph and, and their father, Jacob, for playing favorites. Now he's down in Egypt and he is, he is pleading for his father's case. He has accepted his father, warts and all, uh, the, the man who now is playing favorites with Benjamin. And Judah is standing down in Egypt and he's saying, please, for the sake of my father, don't, don't leave Benjamin here as a slave. Let, let me take his place instead. And so here is Judah, a man with a changed heart, and he is being raised to this position of preeminence. And, and notice the exalted language as Jacob speaks Blessing to Judah in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. And later on, your father's sons shall bow down before you. That sounds pretty familiar. It sounds a lot like Joseph, doesn't it? When Joseph was a young boy, 17 years old, he had dreams, dreams that came true. His brothers, his family bowed down before him. But you know, none of his family praised him. And so here you have... Judah, or someone connected to Judah, being raised to this position where his family will bow down and praise him. And not only that, not only will he receive praise, he's also described in the middle of that verse as a victorious conqueror. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. So here is Judah being raised to this position of prominence where his, his family will praise him and where he will be a, a great military leader who, who wins, who, who, who experiences triumph over his enemies. And then he's described in, in animal terms. You know, which, which animal are you? Jacob does this with several of the sons and the, the animal that describes Judah is, is a lion. 
And the lion language is, is multiplied in this verse. In verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He, he crouched. Now as a full-grown lion. And then as a lioness. You know, protecting her cubs. Who dares rouse him? You know, this is actually where we get the great title the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It originates in Genesis 49, verse 9. And so Judah is described here as a, as a lion. And the reason for that, I think, becomes clear as we trace it out. Because Jacob, in essence, is prophesying and saying here to Judah, Judah, you are the one through whom the, the bloodline of God's covenant promises will be brought to consummation. And that's why he says in verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And you'll notice, at least in the ESV, there's a footnote noting that uh, translators uh, have difficulty uh, translating this verse for us. But I actually think there's a, there's a clue later on in the Old Testament that helps us understand how this verse should be read. It's in the book of Ezekiel when, when Ezekiel is speaking to the final king of Judah in the Old Testament, Zedekiah. And Ezekiel says to him that the, the crown, the turban is to be removed and, and he will be brought to ruin. The line of Judah will be crushed, done away with. And, and Ezekiel says, until he comes, the one to whom judgment Belongs, And I, I think Ezekiel is simply reflecting upon this prophecy here in Genesis 49. And at the end of the day, it's a prophecy all about our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, the lion of the tribe of Judah who reigns as God's king. You remember that, that glorious picture in, in Revelation chapter 5. Uh, John the Apostle is, uh, is invited into the throne room of God and, and seated upon the throne is, is one uh, who, who holds uh, a scroll, but the scroll is sealed shut. And then there's this loud voice that can be heard throughout all of heaven. Who is worthy to take the book and open up the scroll? The scroll is a symbol of, of God's covenant promises, his covenant purposes. And, and John is so caught up in this moment as he sees this scroll that is sealed and cannot be opened. He's caught up in it and he begins to weep. He begins to cry. He's overwhelmed because here in the hand of the one seated on the throne is, is the, the potential for the salvation of God's people. But nobody can break the seals. To bring God's purposes to pass. And then there's this voice in heaven. That says behold. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Has conquered. He has won a victory over his enemies. He is able to break the seals. And open the book. And it's, and it's Jesus. And you remember. John looks after just mentioning the lion of the tribe of Judah. He looks and he sees before the throne of God a lamb standing as if it had been slain. So you see the, what John is t telling us in this passage. That, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah promised here in Genesis chapter 49 is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ who would overcome, win victory over all of the powers of sin and death and darkness and hell by his own sacrificial death upon the cross. He would be the one who would bring to realization all the saving purposes of God promised in eternity. And so we have here Jacob prophesying about the future blessing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on here to talk about the the kind of kingdom he will bring. He goes on to talk about the kind of king he will be. What, What kind of reign will this be that Jesus ushers in? In verse 11, Jacob pictures, I I think, the ideas of of peace and prosperity that Jesus will bring as king. He will bind his foal to the vine. I'll stop there for a moment. I think there's really two two parts to this verse. He will bind his foal to the vine. That can go right over our heads in the 21st century. So let me say, I, I think it means something along these lines. You can You can take a fancy car with all of your treasured and most expensive possessions and park it in what used to be the worst neighborhood in Johnstown and not lock your doors and not worry about it because there's perfect security and peace. But beyond safety and security, there's there's also this idea of abundance. He, he, uh, He ties, he binds his full donkey's colt to the choice vine. Now, you wouldn't tie a donkey to a choice vine unless there's so much to go around that it doesn't really matter if the donkey, uh, donkey's colt helps himself. We, we used to have horses uh, with my parents, and sometimes if we were saddling up, instead of doing it uh, by the barn area, we, we'd just take them out near a tree. And you know what the horse would immediately try to do if you didn't have it on a tight line. It would either try to help itself to some greenery above or some grass beneath. And, and here, here's what's being described here. It, it, he, he's, he's, uh, he, he's describing a place where there's so much abundance that even a donkey's colt gets to eat from the choice vines. And I think the picture of abundance continues. He says he has washed his garments in wine. His Vesture in the blood of grapes. Now, what's a, what's a bottle of wine run? Uh, $15, $20. That's, I know that's the cheap stuff. But can you imagine washing your clothes in a $20 bottle of wine? I mean, you, you, you're probably thankful that your water bill is not your wine bill. But there's such an abundance being described poetically here that, that he's washing his garments in fine wine. And my, I can't help but, but run to John's gospel and, and think of the, the first miracle of, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ in the wedding of Cana when he uh, transforms gallons and gallons of water into the finest wine. Such is the abundance of joy that Jesus brings in. And then there's verse 12. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. You know, this language, it belongs to a different world. I know we don't talk this way, but we can grasp the meaning here. I think in in our way of speaking, if we were to put it in our vernacular, we would say that 
His eyes are more sparkling than wine. There's a sparkle in his eyes. And my friends, I wonder, do you, do you have a Jesus who has a sparkle in his eyes? Or do you just have a grumpy old Jesus who's just always waiting to put you down, con- condemn you, tell you in all the ways that you're wrong? Or do you have a Jesus who has a sparkle in his eyes, the Jesus the children loved to be around? That's the Jesus that Jacob is prophetically picturing here for us. A Jesus who has a a sparkle in his eyes because he's a good king, because he's full of love and grace. And he says his teeth are whiter than milk. Again, we we don't talk that way, but this is language that we find in the Song of Solomon. The Song of Songs. This is this is the woman being dazzled. And this is Jacob looking forward to the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's saying, you will be dazzled by him. You will want to fall down on your face and praise him and render tribute to him. Uh, Incidentally, I I heard someone make a comment on this passage that um, maybe you've caught this on YouTube or flipping through television stations. You've come across a a Christian channel where there is this, well... I won't mince words, huckster who allegedly has this power to slay people in the spirit. You know, he's putting his hands on people's heads or he's waving some kind of garment at them. And what happens? They, they all fall backwards, right? That's what always happens. They always fall backwards. But I wonder if you've noticed that in scripture, when someone has an encounter with the Lord Jesus or the Lord Jesus through, through the ministry of the Spirit. People never fall down backwards. They always fall down forwards onto their faces, down onto their knees, and they begin to worship and adore him because they are dazzled by his glory and grace. And so this is, this is a marvelous prophetic picture of, of Jesus and the kingdom that he brings. Of course, we're not saying that Jacob understood everything he was saying, Certainly generations after him sought to understand the the meaning of these words. But from where we stand, we can understand what Jacob was talking about. This is all about Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this passage, Genesis 49, it it is inviting us to fix our eyes upon the lion of the tribe of Judah and be dazzled by him. Because of how great of a king he is. Because of how full of grace and love he is. Fall down and worship him and put your trust in him. There's another prophecy we need to look at here. And it's in verses uh, 22 through 26. There's God's future purposes declared here regarding uh, Judah and, and, and through Judah. But when Jacob comes to Joseph... The focus is not so much upon what God will do in the future, but upon what God has already done in and through Joseph. So a future purpose for Judah and a fulfilled purpose for Joseph. Take a look at what he says in verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. And they did, didn't they? And we're talking about this little 
teenager who was growing up in the boonies, and eventually he becomes the second in authority in the land of Egypt, and uh, becomes the physical savior of the ancient Near Eastern world. People are flocking to Joseph for life. How fruitful God made him. But then verse 23 immediately then goes to talking about the suffering he experienced. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. I, I think it's a poetic description of what Joseph's brothers tried to do to him, what what Potiphar's wife tried to do to him, and behind all of that, what the powers of darkness were seeking to do in order to destroy God's purposes for this man's life. And so Jacob moves from his fruitfulness to his suffering to tell us that the reason for the fruitfulness was because what God did through the suffering. So in the suffering, verse 24 God made him steadfast. His bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. He was kept by God's power through faith, made fruitful through suffering. That's the story of Joseph's life in a nutshell, dear friends. He was kept by God's power through faith, made fruitful through suffering. But as we look at this in more detail, I think there's, there's something that at least it catches me by surprise as I've, I've studied it. Let's, let's try to imagine it this way. If, if you've read the story of, in Genesis up to this point, story of Joseph's life, and, and you didn't know what was contained in Genesis chapter 49, and, and I said to you, Genesis 49 is where Jacob blesses his sons and declares... God's future purposes, the outworking of his covenant promises through one of his sons. And then I asked you, would you take a guess at which son God is going to carry out his covenant promises through? I think most of us would say it's got to be Joseph. Joseph's the man. Joseph is God's man. But actually, Joseph is not the man. Joseph is not the man through whom the Messiah would come through his descendants. We find out that, that for all the blessing Joseph has received and will receive, what God has done in and through Joseph, his line is not the line the Messiah would come from. And so when you read Jacob's blessing, it leads you to say, I think at the end of the day, oh, <laughs> this really isn't about Joseph at all. Joseph will be mentioned a few more times in the Old Testament, but by and large, he, he, he virtually disappears here. He is, in a sense, being set aside. And so Joseph is, is not the preeminent one. It's, it's not Reuben, but it's not Joseph either. And, and the interesting thing is that Joseph, well, he stands head and shoulders above his brothers, doesn't he, in terms of his faithfulness to God, in terms of what God has done in and through him. Joseph stands out, and, 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 and here he is, and he's just heard Jacob pronounce this blessing upon 
Judah and that, that Judah would be the preeminent one and that the scepter would belong to Judah's family line. Picture the scene for a moment. All of these brothers are on the deathbed of their father, these shepherds. And I, I imagine Joseph still in his Egyptian garb, dressed up as this great authority, this powerful man in the land of Egypt. And he's being told it's through Judah that God will carry out his covenant promises. He's, he's, he's hearing the Lord say, I've done it. My purpose has been fulfilled in Joseph's life. Yes, Joseph and his family will still be blessed. But God is now moving on to bigger and greater purposes. And here's what I think the really remarkable thing in both this chapter and in the next chapter as the book comes to a close The remarkable thing is that there isn't even a hint of jealousy. There isn't a note of envy. There isn't any indication that Joseph was irritated. There there is this sense in which there's just a gracious submission to the plan and purpose of God in his life. And, And my friends, I think there's a tremendous lesson there for us if we unpack it for ourselves for a few moments. Here's a man who's, who's been through so much, who's suffered so much, who's now in this position of greatness and power, and when he discovers that the, that the Lord intends to do even greater things through someone else, he's, he's not angry or envious. He, he, he just wants to submit his life to the plan and purposes of God. He, he wants the wise and good a covenant plan of God to unfold, whatever that might mean for him. Let me just try to illustrate that by, by telling a, a story for a moment about a man by the name of, uh, of Robert Murray McShane, a 19th century Scottish pastor who died at the age of 29 um, after seven years of ministry. He's a remarkable man, 29 years old, and uh, just a testimony to God's abounding grace. He's a sickly man, and the church sent him uh, down through Europe into Palestine to investigate the spiritual condition of the Jews. The church in Scotland was interested in the salvation of the Jewish people. And while he is away on, on his travels... Uh, a man was sent to fill the pulpit for him, uh, a man by the name of William Chalmers Burns. Uh, William Chalmers Burns was, was also a very young man, actually younger than McShane in his early 20s. And uh, he came and, and filled the pulpit while McShane was away. And, and during that time, through Burns's ministry, God worked in a miraculous, marvelous, powerful way among the people of that congregation. So much so that when McShane returned, people were quietly asking the question, what are we going to do without Burns? McShane was discerning and spiritually mature enough to recognize that this was, this was a test I mean, for all the gifts McShane had, for all the ways he had served this congregation through sickness, God used Burns to work powerfully among the people there. 
I think it's worth saying about Burns, you know, what, what he ended up doing is uh, he ended up going to China, leaving behind the rising popularity uh, to go into inland China during the days of Hudson Taylor and join the inland China mission. But McShane, in a sense, and this is the point of the story, McShane, in a sense, was, was set aside and God was pleased to use another instrument to fulfill his purposes. And here's Joseph, who has learned through his life, and we see it here at the end of the book of Genesis, he's learned that it's not all about him. And, and when his father says that Judah, not Joseph, will be the preeminent one, no hint of protest, no jealousy, no envy, because Joseph knows it's not ultimately about him. It's about God's covenant purposes. It's about the display of his wisdom and glory. And the question I want us to ask ourselves today is simply this, dear friends, is that, is that where we are? Are we here with Joseph realizing it's not about me? I am in the Lord's hand. My, my, my life is in the Lord's hand. And I, and I am pleased to see him work out his good and perfect will, whatever that means for me and my family. Uh, the prayer that's printed at the front of your bulletin under the reflective reading. Why don't you pick up your bulletin and take a look at it with me for a moment. This is, this is a prayer some churches use uh, around the time of the new year. Some churches even encourage their people to make a covenant with the Lord at the beginning of the year by praying this prayer. Now look at the language with me for a moment. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. Friends, is that, is that where we are today? Can we say that our hands are open to our Heavenly Father and we're saying to him, Lord, everything that I am, everything that I have, my, my past, my present, and my future are in your hands. And I entrust myself to you because I, I know that you are good. I know that all that you do is, is good, even when I don't understand. And I know that you are good because you've, you've given your, your son for me to live for me and die for me to give me salvation. And in him you've promised blessing upon blessing, even in the midst of sorrow upon sorrow. So, so I trust you. And everything that I am and everything that I have is at your disposal. I think Joseph is a man who could say that to the Lord. He, he had learned that even if it was sore, or perhaps from our fallen, limited perspective, even if it didn't seem fair, if we want to use that language, 
that whatever God was doing and would do is wise and perfectly good. And so this passage, I think, is teaching us a lesson that we can surrender our lives and our futures into God's hands, trusting Him to bless because He has already secured for us the greatest blessings of all in the the Lion of the tribe of Judah, our Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, let's entrust our, our lives, our present and our futures into His hands. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for how much it has to teach us about your ways with your people, but we confess that when it comes to applying that to our own lives, we often struggle, and so we need your help. Uh, we, We need you to fix our eyes upon our good king, our victorious king, the lion of the tribe of Judah who has been slain for us. Fix our eyes upon him each and every day and enable us to entrust all that we have and are into his good hands. We pray this through Jesus Christ. Amen.